You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, your podcast for in-depth discussions of national security law and the history that gives you the context you need. National Security Law Today is brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. I'm joined by two national security lawyers here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. I'm Yvette. Thanks for listening. NSLT has created a safe space for national security law nerds to come and hang out. Hey, we're glad you're here, even if you sometimes get raised eyebrows around the Christmas dinner table when you launch into that deep monologue on the history of FISA. But let's get right into today's topics, and there are two. First, we're going to look back at the two Supreme Court cases in the last term that dealt with national security issues, the Carpenter case and the Rubin case. And then we're going to pivot to a conversation we started about how to build a defense against foreign influence campaigns and in particular, those that occur on social media. So we're delighted today to have Jamil Jaffer with us, who's had a real front row seat to national security history. That would be true. Um, and I, I don't even know where to begin. His CV must go on for like 50 pages, uh, but it looks something like this. He was Associate White House Counsel to President George W. Bush, Senior Counsel for HIPSI, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Then he was Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he also clerked for Justice Neil Gorsuch, not once, but twice. Um, first on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, and then a second time on the Supreme Court. So thank you very much for coming in. Well, no, thanks for having me, and it uh, just goes to prove I just can't hold a job for very long, so I've got to sneak out before I get fired. <laughs> um, so, great. So, I would love to ask you um, about our first case that's on the docket today, so to speak. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the Carpenter case? Sure. Well, you know, Timothy Carpenter was a, uh, a thief, uh, for better or for worse. Um, he... Uh, Decided to rob Radio Shack stores. I don't know if anybody remembers Radio Shack stores anymore. They're not really <laughs> around. But back in my day of growing up, you know, you go to the Radio Shack store to buy your batteries or your little radios or, you know, your electronics kits that you could build up and make into a, you know, a flashing light or whatever it might be. Um, and, uh, and so Mr. Carpenter and his team were robbing, um, uh, these Radio Shack stores, oddly enough of, or uh, ironically enough, as the case notes, um, uh, of T-Mobile cell phones. Um, and, uh, so he, um, the police go get, without a warrant, uh, go get an order under a federal statute, uh, which permitted them to do so without a warrant, uh, an order for his cell phone records. And they use his cell phone records and those of his compatriots. Uh, there were about 15 of these guys in his, his cell phone Radio Shack robbing gang um, uh, to identify his location. And uh, sure enough, there shows up Mr. Carpenter's phone at multiple of the robbery locations at the time of the robbery. And and, you know, to be fair, his accomplices ratted him out, as we confront with the evidence, and uh, seven of them said uh, that, yeah, no, he's the leader of the gang. Uh, but Mr. Carpenter, you know, t- true to true to form, uh, denied everything and said, well, you know, I mean, I, you can't use this evidence against me. It was obtained unlawfully. Um, uh, well, he didn't really deny everything, but, you know, ultimately um, argues that the evidence can't be used against him, right? Argues that the evidence can't be used because it was obtained without a warrant, uh, the many, many times they identified his location uh, over the course of almost 120 plus 127 some odd days, almost 101 location points a day 
so tens of thousands of location points over the course of this review of his phone records. Um, he says, look, this is protected information. This is protected by the Fourth Amendment. You should have to get a warrant to look for it. Um, you can't just go get it using this uh, 2703D uh, order, even though it's provided for in statute. And uh, if you do do it, you can't uh, you can't um, can't use it against me in court. And they did, and uh, he argued that, and got all the way up to the Supreme Court, and uh, here we are. Well, and, and, and in point of fact, that was a cell site record, which means basically the towers. It, it was not the kind of uh, pointed geolocation information I think we get now. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not like Waze or Google Maps where you can precisely identify exactly where you are. Um, it was just these sort of, you know, these cell phone towers back in the old days they used to be triangular, if you guys remember, and so... They sort of have these, have these uh, sectors that the, each face of the cell phone tower uh, points in. And so you can identify which face of the tower, which tower his phone's pinging off of and which face. And so it was approximate. But, I mean, look, Carpenter, besides being ratted out by seven of his accomplices, was actually right in the area on the tower, on the tower face of where the racetrack was robbed out once, but, you know, four times. So Coincidence. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. just coincidence, coincidence, just random, <laughs> yeah. random luck, was not the, did not run this gang of... 15 people robbing T-Mobile phones from, from Radio Shack stores. But, uh, yeah, here we are, Mr. Carpenter. So how did the court um, analyze the, the case? Well, so it's interesting because, you know, this, this falls at the intersection, as the court notes, of sort of two lines of cases. There's a line of cases that talks about whether you can surveil somebody in public, uh, whether you can um, monitor them for long periods of time, uh, there was this case coming out of D.C., a drug dealer, uh, a drug dealer case called United States v. Jones a few years back, um, where uh, the court ultimately held, uh, in a Scalia opinion, uh, uh, brought back an old doctrine, the Ulta doctrine, the idea that a trespass to property uh, violates the Fourth Amendment. It was because they had installed uh, the GPS tracking device on Mr. Jones's car here in D.C. Um, after the warrant had expired. And so the court ultimately held that surveillance was unlawful, but not because of the period of time the, the surveillance took or, or the validated reasonable expectation of privacy, but because they had installed this device unlawfully. Um, now, Justice Sotomayor, in, you know, nobody really remembers Jones for that purpose, for the its actual holding. Everyone cites Jones for the Sotomayor one justice concurrence where she lays out this argument that, you know, the modern era, these this ability to track somebody everywhere they go at all times and very precise tracking um, could create Fourth Amendment problems. Um, and... And ultimately, the, sort of this mosaic theory, this idea that you can you can sort of figure out everywhere everybody went, whether he was, you know, with his family or with his friends or with a lover or with his psychiatrist or with his lawyer, right, Mr. Jones, um, that you can tell the whole story of his life by, by this GPS tracking. And so um, so this sort of this case follows the intersection of Jones, one line of cases, and then these cases, Smith and Miller, right? Miller, these cases from, from the, uh, from, you know, years back, uh, Miller holding that you could access bank records. Um, and Smith holding that you could obtain um, uh, pen register and trap trace records of the dialed numbers from a phone uh, or the dialed to or the dialed from numbers. Um, and those cases were about the third-party doctrine, the idea that once you give a third party some information, it's no longer yours. You no longer have a Fourth Amendment protected interest in that information. And as a result, um, the government can get it without a Fourth Amendment warrant. Um, and obviously that, that question has decayed a lot and raised a lot of questions in the modern era because we give tremendous amounts of information about ourselves third parties, whether it's Google on your cell phone um, or all those emails that, you know, are sort of yours, but you know Google reads because they send you ads about the emails that you get. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so the question is, is when do you have to get a Fourth Amendment warrant when you're looking at uh, people's data? 
Does it matter if it's content or non-content? Does it matter if it's location or not location? Does it matter if it's phone numbers or bank records? You know, and, and how do you resolve these cases? You have to overturn Smith and Miller uh, to resolve Carpenter. And very quickly, what did the justices decide in the Carpenter case before we get beyond to talk about Smith and Miller? And yeah, I mean, and there are people who may not have actually noticed that case, even though it informed, I think, uh, anybody working in the telecom industry, anybody yeah. who has a client who's going to have to respond financially to this and, and so on. Well, it's it's sort of it's a it's a funny case in the sense that they decided in favor of Mr. Carpenter, right? In the sense that they uh, determined that you had to get a warrant uh, to conduct the surveillance uh, of this nature, where you were obtaining 127 days of, of cell site locational records um, with you know tens of thousands of points of location. Um, this to them crossed the line, but they basically said it only this ruling basically applies in this case and only this case. We're not overturning Smith and Miller. We're not saying anything about whether it applies to other cases that are similar. If it's a different number of days, a different set of information, maybe it applies, maybe it doesn't apply. We know it applies here. Um, so a very narrow holding, um, an important holding, but a narrow one, um, and one that appeared necessary to cobble together the right number of votes to get to the result, um, but problematic because I think a lot of people who were concerned about third-party doctrine, the Smith and Miller cases in the modern era, it's sort of the Justice Sotomayor position, uh, we're hoping that Smith and Miller will be overturned. And in fact, in this case, they explicitly did not overturn Smith and Miller. The third party doctrine survives. We just don't know what it really looks like. We know that it doesn't apply here because here they got the records from a, from a third party carrier. Um, but we, we know that at least this case goes too far. I mean, cross that line into Fourth Amendment protected territory and need a warrant. So the Supreme Court still left us a lot of questions. A lot of questions. And in the decision, Justice Sotomayor talked about pinging cell phones in dressing rooms which creates this idea that location tracking is similar to watching a person in their private quarters, yeah. while Justices Kennedy and Alito talked about 24-hour location tracking in similar cases that involved financial transactions yeah. and cases that state individuals do not enjoy these privacy rights and financial transactions, which tracks what you were saying before. Yeah. Are these analogies to watching people in private or to tracking their finances through a third party applicable well, I mean, there is a surface sort of attraction to what just Sotomayor is saying, right? Which is this idea that you may not actually be able to see this human being in the dressing room, but you know they're in this room, in this part of the house, if you have GPS tracking. You know, as Justice sort of Scalia famously said in the Kylo case, the, the thermal imaging case, you know when the lady of the house is in her bedroom or in the boudoir, right? Or whatever it might have been, right? The bathroom, whatever it might be. Um, so here, with this precise location, you can tell... Is this person, not only are they in you know the room of the house, but also are they at their psychiatrist? Are they with their lawyer? Are they with their lover? It's two in the morning, right? They're not at home on every Thursday. What does that mean, right? You can tell a lot about a person's life if you know exactly where they are at all times. And so I do think that that raises some interesting questions um, and some hard questions about who owns that data. Is it really the third party's data because you're giving it to them to give you some services? Does it matter if you sort of gave them consent and knew they were going to, they might give it to the government. Does it matter that you knew that the law enforcement could obtain it through a court, through a non-warrant court order? I mean, these are hard questions, right? I think a lot of Americans think that their financial transactions, even though they give this information to a bank, are protected. And it turns out they're right. Because what happened was right after Miller, Miller was decided by the court, Congress came in and passed a law called the Right to Financial Privacy Act. Just like right after Smith was decided, Congress came in and passed the uh, uh, you know, one of the one of the telecom laws. Um, I'm drawing a blank on it now. Bank the, Secrecy Act. The, well, the Bank Secrecy Act, right? In, right but, after that, that, one of the telecom laws was the amendment. Are you talking about the amendment to ECPA? Yeah, well, the, no, ECPA yeah. itself, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, right? And so, 
So Congress has, has regularly sought to protect people's privacy rights in communications and financial transactions, even when the court has said those rights don't exist as a matter of constitutional law. But you have the court doing here in sort of an interesting move is saying, well, we need to look at what, what the sort of policy ought to be, right? Which is we ought to protect people's location. And that and that becomes a hard part where you're trying to figure out what how much of this is policy, how much of this is law. Is that Fourth Amendment line really one that the court should be policing or that we should be looking to Congress for? And did Congress really police it here by saying that you can get these type of records from a phone provider in a federal statute? So the problem that I have with, with what Justice Alito said and, and was that he's, he's saying it's debatable whether people know whether or not their information is being conveyed or um, to the technology that they have. But I think paradigmatically, when you're talking about this case, the discussion really surrounded what, is informa- what information is conveyed to the carrier, meaning your AT&T, your cellular provider. I think this ignores sort of the vast swath of information that you're conveying to app developers, websites, and all of this, many of which require you to agree before you can proceed to use their technology. So you are, you know that you're giving some location information, but what did you think about that exchange, Jamil, and, and what does that bode you know, for the future and, and these cases coming forward to the court? Yeah, I mean, I just, I just don't see how you can make the argument that people don't understand what they're giving up. I mean, we all, you know, when we, when we download these apps, you know, ask, can you give, will you give these permissions? You always say yes, but you, but you know, I mean, you know what you're doing, right? I mean, nobody's confused about the fact that your cell phone knows where you are. I mean, you wanted to know where you are so you could figure out where you are on Google Maps. You can, I mean, my, you know, my, my nine-year-old now, but who was, you know, 1.3 and 4, knew that Google Maps knew where he was. I mean, it, well, this isn't rocket science, right? I mean, uh, the idea that, and I agree with you, though, that, you know, these, a lot of these members of Congress during these last hearings have not sort of acquitted, them particularly, acquitted themselves particularly well in the sense of knowing technology. It seems actually very clear that even some of the, you know, some of the more, the younger members of Congress aren't particularly technology savvy. It's a real concern. It's a real concern. Um, you know, actually, one of the things that we're doing at, at George Mason, where I where I spend some of my time, um, is bringing in technologists um, uh, to be to to learn how to do policy and actually get up on the hill and and educate folks um, uh, about the actual technology of what 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 uh, what's going on, whether it's cybersecurity or or uh, cell phone location or the like. But the idea that the average consumer doesn't know they're giving their location data or they're giving access to to to, to Google to read their email, I mean, it's that's. I mean, it's it's just simply not true. And it's only it's only if you're below the age of you know 50, right? You know that you're giving up a certain amount of information. Now, does that mean that you're willing to have the government have access to it? Different story, right? But the idea that you don't know that somebody, some third party, is getting that information, they're using it for their own purposes, that's ridiculous. Right, and you don't know where that information is going. I mean, nothing tells you, hey, we won't sell this stuff overseas to whichever government we choose to sell it to. And consumers aren't demanding that. If consumers were demanding that, we'd have a different story. In Europe, right? I mean, what's interesting, you know, in the U.S., we care very little as Americans about what data private companies get about us. We care a lot about what the government gets from us, and that's been true since the founding era. And as that should be, right? The government has the lawful monopoly on the use of force, right? They can put you in jail. They can arrest you. Um, And so it makes sense that we're concerned about that. In Europe, though, it's an entirely different story. Europeans are happy to give the government whatever data they want. Their surveillance laws are very lax. No matter that you heard all these crying and, you know, hue and cry about American surveillance laws, European surveillance laws are a joke compared to American surveillance laws. <laughs> There's almost no barrier to government surveillance in Europe. 
Um, and and yet, when it comes to private collection of data, they're very concerned. GDPR, right? All these things about private companies general, having data. The general data protection regulations, right? which were advanced by the EU a number of years ago, yep. and but for which they've only recently come up with some sort of interpretations. And got into effect. Yeah, they just went into. They gave sort of people a, a sort of a three four year window to get ready for it because they knew what a train wreck it would be, and it has been a train wreck. Um, um, that being said. It demonstrates the Europeans' concern about private sector entities having data and, our, and the la- our relative lack of concern in that space. And so what does that have to do, though, with all of this case? And I think the relevance to this case is um, here's a situation where Mr. Carpenter was happily giving his cell phone locational data to, uh, to you know, whatever whoever's provider was, AT&T in this case, I think it was, um, and yet concern when the government goes and gets it without a Fourth Amendment warrant, right? Even though it didn't really have anything to do with the content of his information, which is typically the line that we thought. There was non-content and content information. This was non-content information. But, as Justice Sotomayor has argued um, in, in Jones and, and then sort of won the day here, um, in an opinion, I think, by, was it by Chief Justice Roberts, um, the, uh, ultimately the, the, the winning side of this was, yeah, there's just too much data here, and it's sort of content-like in the sense that it tells you a lot about the person's life. So there we are. Um, just this week... Uh, the New York Times, um, and we'll hyperlink this, by the way, the New York Times had an article talking about the full scope of location information that is sort of taken from individuals here in the United States. But I guess given the circumstances and the amount of data that is collected, it's hard to believe that Mr. Carpenter himself had any reasonable expectation of privacy, regardless of what he paid attention to. Um, It just doesn't seem to fit with the technological realities of today. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, this is the challenge of this reasonable expectation of privacy test that was uh, that was sort of comes out of this uh, United States v. Katz case back from the 1960s. Um, you know, in, in that case, the court determined that there are sort of two types of, in, in, in a, a concurrence, uh, that there are sort of two types of expectation of privacy. There's an objective test and a subjective test, right? Um, does that person subject, the person who we're talking about, the, the, the defendant, um, subjectively uh, create an expectation of privacy? Do they, do they demonstrate that they have an expectation of privacy? And then, is society, as on an objective test, is society prepared to recognize that subjective expectation as, a, as an objectively reasonable expectation of privacy to have in the modern era? Now, the problem is, right, how do you figure out whether he, had a sub- he or she had a subjective expectation? And then how do you figure out whether objectively society is ready to, ready to accept that, right? Well, you've got nine, frankly, fairly old, a little younger now today than they were a few years ago, but frankly, nine old justices sort of guessing what society's ready to accept. I mean, that cannot possibly be the test the framers envisioned um, for the Fourth Amendment when they wrote those words uh, down about about, uh, about unreasonable searches and seizures. And yet, this is the test we crafted in the 1960s, we still apply today, and it's not surprising we get to these crazy results, and we have sort of Supreme Court justices, well, you know, you can tell where people are, and so maybe they do have the expectation of privacy. Well, it's a cell phone, and Cell phones have a lot of data on them, so therefore, cell phones, no matter when you search them, even though search incident to an arrest, if you search a cell phone, well, that's different than if you search their pockets or their wallet or whatever, because a wallet only holds so much information. A cell phone holds a ton of information. Right, you know. or, or a server somewhere does. I like the idea right. that, you know, something oh, like cloud. is crammed oh, yeah. into the cell phone. Right. I mean, it sounds like an overstuffed file box or something. Well, and at the end of the day, I mean, you don't want... Nine Supreme Court justices making these policy calls. You want Congress making these policy calls. You want elected legislators sort of representing the views of the people. If you want to know what the people are ready to accept, well, we have a way of doing that. It's called democracy. 
It's called Congress. We've got a House of Representatives, a Senate. They can vote and tell us what the people think. And yet somehow we've created these constitutional tests, including uh, the reasonable expectation of privacy, which, by the way, everyone thinks is the right test. But to me, it's completely crazy that you have nine justices who are trying to figure that out. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. What are the American people ready to reasonably accept? Yeah, and honestly, too, right? Because they may pay a lot of lip service to what they're reasonably willing to accept. However, their behavior may suggest a, a stark contrast to that exactly. that claim. Exactly. Um, I also, I mean, I, I think that if we're just talking about like a reasonableness test, I think just considering how much information is on your cell phone, you know, it's like a mini computer. It's got all of this information on it, right? Like we've had those cases where, you know, there have been uh, suits to unlock people's iPhones or unlock people's uh, smartphones, right? Um, is it unreasonable to say, hey, the government shouldn't be able to know where my exact location is at any given time? Well, it might be. Um, I mean, I think you know, I think the unlocking cell phone cases are, are interesting. They're they're a harder a harder, and I think it's sort of a different case. Um, it's fair. Look, I mean, obviously there are there is a there is a majority of the Supreme Court that agrees with you that knowing where somebody's location is at all times or a lot of the time um, is a problem. Um, and, and there are a lot of people out in the public space who read the Sotomayor concurrence in Jones and read Carpenter and say, this is clearly right. The government should not be able to know everywhere I am at all times, and they should not be able to go to a, a cell phone provider and get it unless they have a Fourth Amendment warrant. Where it gets even more interesting, I think, is the question you raised, which is, well, let's suppose the government does have a warrant, and they go to a, a company, say, I don't know, a company that makes a lot of phones that a lot of us have, and says, hey, I've got a warrant here. In fact, not only do I have a warrant, I have the consent of the company that the, the people that own this phone, in this case, San Bernardino, San, Di, San Bernardino County, right, where that terrorist was in, in California. We have the consent of the owner of the phone. It's his work phone. Um, we want you to give us access to the data on this phone. And the company says, yep, nope, we've locked, we've taken the keys, we've locked it, we've thrown them away. You cannot have access. We're, we're not doing it. And that's an interesting scenario because under the Fourth Amendment, you know, remember when the framers wrote the Fourth Amendment, they didn't think that law enforcement could never get into Ben Franklin's desk drawer or his file cabinet or, frankly, his, his wife's underwear drawer. You could, as long as you had a warrant from a judge granted under the Fourth Amendment. And once you had that, you could get into everything and read his personal diary. Yet today, now, we think, oh, no, no, no. My cell phone is sacrosanct. No matter whether you have a warrant or anything, I want it encrypted. I want it locked up. I don't want anybody to have access to it. And we have, you know, companies in America today that are that are sort of you know, pressing that point of view. And that's that's going to be a challenge for law enforcement because if you know, if they win that battle, and they have to date so far won that battle, I think the problem we're going to run into is that one day something will happen, right? That bad event will happen, and then we'll react the opposite way because Americans care about their privacy until they did the day they don't care about their privacy, until there's an event. Exactly. Well, I, I think it's a really interesting question because the companies are responding to a demand, right? Like this end-to-end encryption, messenger apps that are, like, completely encrypted, um, the companies are just responding to what the need of the consumer is. And so there's a tension between what, you know, people are asking for, what the consumers are demanding, versus um, what the government would like to have access to with respect to law enforcement. Well, I mean, that's, that's a hard no, right? I mean, the companies, companies say they respond to consumer demand, and certainly there is demand among certain sectors of the consuming public uh, for this, but really, the loudest voice in this room are privacy groups that haven't that haven't incentive to advocate in one direction and one direction only. Um, and 
you know, they do have a very loud voice. Uh, but the reality is that Americans, like I said earlier, Americans care about their privacy until an event happens, and then they don't care about their privacy, until it's 9-11 or Megan Kanka, right, or Polly Class. And when, when a sympathetic plaintiff happens, a sympathetic victim happens, or a big terrorist attack or whatever, privacy and all this stuff goes out the back door, and you get you get bad results, you get overcorrection. So if you hate the Patriot Act, right, you should try to find a way to solve the encryption issue now rather than sort of going the other direction. Because if you don't like if you don't like the results of the Patriot Act, you are teeing yourself for getting that result the next time an encrypted phone is used for a terrorist attack or the like. And so I hear the companies claim that oh we're doing this for our consumers and the like, but the reality is that if you don't make the deal now and you wait for that event to happen. All this stuff goes out the back door, and then we get a worse result for both the consuming public and the companies. You get a, a, a non a non technologically savvy solution imposed by members of Congress who don't really get technology. Well, that's that's one of the concerns. But there was one other opinion um, I think that was important to think about, which was Reuven versus the Islamic Republic of Iran. Yeah. Um, now this was a very important case, but I think it received substantially less attention. Uh, than Carpenter did. Yeah. But tell us about that one. So Ruben involved um, a set of terrorist attacks that happened. Uh, Hamas conducted some terrorist attacks, uh, a series of bombings in Jerusalem. A lot of people were killed. Um, and uh, some of the victims' families uh, brought suit um, in American court um, against the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran, which uh, supported Hamas uh, and uh, is a support of terrorism around the world, uh, whether it's Hamas or Hezbollah. Um, and is constantly the, the, the groups in Yemen, uh, the Houthi rebels are funded by Iran. Um, and so people, you know, there's a big argument today on Capitol Hill about the, about the Yemen conflict. We shouldn't forget that in a lot of ways that conflict is, is less about Yemen itself and more about Iran and our Sunni allies having a sort of a proxy war, uh, there in Yemen. But coming back to the case, um, so they sue these, these, uh, these families of the, of the, of the victims sue, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran. They obtain now, normally in American courts, foreign sovereigns are exempt from from lawsuit. They have immunity. They have sovereign the immunity. Foreign Sovereigns Immunities Act, which right. we'll hyperlink in the notes. Yep. And uh, and yet uh, we have passed over time. We've modified that law to take away sovereignty and allow suits uh, in a variety of circumstances. In particular, as relevant to this case, when they support terrorism. So if you're a nation state supporting terrorism, you don't get the benefit of being exempt from suit in American court. And so they successfully brought suit. And won a judgment, seventy-one some odd million dollars against the Islamic Republic of Iran. And then the question was, how do you how do you get paid, right? How do you pay this judgment? And uh, these these uh, these uh, plaintiffs were very innovative. They found um, some uh, artifacts, uh, these stone tablets, at the University of Chicago, where I went to law school, um, in this uh, in this collection uh, that had been donated to the uh, to the to the library there um, and for study there. Um, before before the 1979 revolution, and so the Islamic Republic of Iran had donated these t- these tablets, and so they sought to attach these tablets and 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 take this property and have it have it sort of sold or disposed of so they could collect on the judgment. Um, and so the question was, um, are these this is this type of property? Um, are they immune from that property being attached and being turned into money? And the reason why I think this case got a lot less attention is. It turns into a very complicated matter, statutory interpretation, with various clauses and parts of this Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which itself is, you know, an eye-wateringly, you know, uh, a, a dense statute. And perhaps not as dense as the Social Security Act, but it's not, it's not great. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so ultimately, 
the court the court said uh, no uh, that you could not attach these assets um, because while while the property provision of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act did cover property like this, um, the property provision itself did not create a right to attach that property. You had to go find somewhere else in the statute an exemption from immunity, and Congress knew how to write it. They didn't put in the property provision. So the property provision just identified the kind of things you could get. You had to go find a substantive right elsewhere to get rid of the immunity. And while you could get the judgment against Iran for the terrorist attacks, to get this property, you had to have a separate exemption. They didn't have that here. And complicated statutory interpretation, long story short, Iran wins. Um, and uh, and these plaintiffs go, uh, at least, they still have the judgment, but the, they don't get the University of Chicago stone tablets, or the Iranian stone tablets at the University of Chicago uh, to execute their judgment. Okay, that was a lot. That was um, a lot. Yeah, and, uh, and those tablets were given to them long before the revolution, uh, which occurred in, what, 1979? So, okay, interesting. Um, let's ask, though, that, that case, because of the way it was resolved, it was resolved in favor of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Did it have any sort of larger policy implications, any diplomatic implications long term uh, that might have an impact on national security, in your opinion? Well, I mean, look, certainly it, um, it, uh, it let some, at least this scoff law state off, um, but it did so in a way that said, Congress, there's a way to fix this, right? You could simply go into that statute amend the provision. You know how to do it. You've done it in other provisions elsewhere. You want to make these stone tablets or other similar pieces of property in the U.S. subject to attachment? Hey, here's a roadmap to do it. It's not complicated. Just write the words you've written elsewhere. And they did it the next day, right? They all got together and they wrote that statute? So there, yeah, well, you know, I mean, Congress <laughs> doesn't move quite as swiftly as that. Um, but, uh, but you know, I mean, it can when, when there's a need. I mean, we've seen Congress move rapidly. Um, you know, go back to our conversation earlier about this encryption question. Congress can move quickly and did, for example, in the in the Patriot Act. Not everyone loves the results there, um, you know, but uh, but Congress knows how to move swiftly. the uh, The question here is, you know, is it going to? And and actually, in that this is a good example of a case where the court says, "Look, Congress, you wrote this law. You didn't you didn't write it in a way that lets these plaintiffs win. You want to let them win? You can go fix it. Have fun. Probably the way it should be done. Actually, that makes sense. <laughs> positive and negative implications of the way this ruling shook out, right? Is there a concern that we may um, pass a law that um, allows the attachment of this? And would there be any sort of like repercussions if we did allow that kind of property to be attached? Yeah, no, sure. I mean, obviously, you know, we've got this, well, we had until about until about three weeks ago, a, uh, a deal with Iran on the nuclear, you know, on the nuclear program uh, where we were waiving sanctions um, and, you know, a deal that uh, President Obama had entered into against sort of Congress's uh, best judgment. Congress sought to see the deal, and then they voted on the deal, and bipartisan majorities in both houses voted against the deal. Um, and then President Trump, interestingly, for even though he had attacked the deal repeatedly on the on the campaign stump, kept it alive for the better part of a year and a half, and ultimately got rid of it um, earlier this year, and then actually implemented that in early November. Um, but yeah, sure, if Congress goes in and says, you know, sovereigns aren't immune and their property here can be attached, that one will obviously cause a diplomatic kerfuffle with Iran at least, if not other nation states where Americans have gotten judgments against them for terrorist attacks or other issues where there's been immunity uh, or there hasn't the immunity been taken away. Um, and so that may cause diplomatic problems. Um, but in addition to that, right, it creates longer term issues, which is, you know, it's unlikely that nations are going to give sort of property to American universities to, you know, 
do their thing with because they might get seeds at some point down the road. Museums, so museums are museums, yeah. anything, anything for the purpose of study or research. Yes. Yeah, so we just have to go back to colonial days and steal it, right, and, and then put it in our museums. <laughs> um, you know, um, well, so sunny optimist you are. Well, sir. you know, I mean. So you know, look, it, you're right. There are there are there are significant foreign policy implications uh, to these things, but that's what's great about having Congress do it, right? They can go, they can hear from the administration, they can hear from foreign nation states, they can hear the complaints, and they can make a judgment. If they then if they if it causes a diplomatic kerfuffle, well then the president can veto the bill, right? Or if the president if they pass over his veto, then you know everyone's got to deal with the reality of the American legislative process. I mean, imagine imagine a world in which. Our members of Congress actually voted on things that mattered, made hard decisions, and then had to live with them. I mean, instead of just punting them to the courts all the time and blaming the courts when they get it when they don't when they don't come out the result they would like. I mean, it would be an amazing thing if democracy could just work in our country for a little while longer. Well, um, I'm going to say maybe it can, <laughs> but um, you know, uh, do you see any cases left on the docket for this term, or think any are going to rise for the following year? to become major national security cases? Well, I mean, I think that there, there continues this debate about how Carpenter is going to apply um, out there in the field. Um, there are uh, a number of cases percolating around still uh, from the Snowden era about state secrets um, and from the, from the, uh, the surveillance uh, cases. Those are still percolating around. There's a lot of cases um, uh, in, in this area of surveillance law beyond Carpenter itself, but a lot of other sort of underlying cases. Um, so there's a lot percolating in the circuits um, about how we protect national security. And then, frankly, um, there's a lot of questions about the surveillance the government conducts today under existing statutes that have long been thought to, uh, you know, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act has long been thought to be subject to an exe- uh, a, uh, a exception to the warrant clause. That, I think, remains vibrant. Um, but the question of at the margins, right, when you're talking about um, collection of metadata, Right, uh, this sort of called 215 program, the business records program, where they're collecting all these phone calls in the U.S. Um, where those lines are is starting to become greater than it has been in the past, um, and uh, and I think ultimately at some point the, the court will either not decide these cases and punt on them and let the lower courts figure it out, um, or we'll have to confront these issues directly. And then of course there's all the 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 the, the run of the mill now Gitmo cases and the habeas cases that the court has largely stayed out of. Um, but they still are percolating around there, too, in the courts of appeals and in the D.C. Circuit. And so, um, you know, and then, of course, we can't account for what might happen um, just with whether it's foreign policy or terrorism um, or trade, frankly, um, the current administration um, and how those cases might play out. We've seen, obviously, the immigration uh, issues um, and the and the and the so-called Muslim ban issues come up to the court already. Um, it wouldn't surprise me in the next two, three years if we see more of that type of stuff racing its way to the Supreme Court. Okay, and just today there is a pretty robust discussion about the president's authority to direct the Justice Department to dismiss an indictment against uh, an executive of Huawei, um, China's largest telecom, Yeah, um, who that woman is now released on bond, but she was um, picked up by the Canadians yeah. uh, and held... On U.S. charges. On U.S. charges yeah. for violating sanctions, uh, IEPA. Um, and uh, apparently she's been released. Um, it, it's and today, as we're recording, two Canadians have been taken into custody in China. Yeah. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see because the president has said today whether there's a debate about whether or not he can direct the Justice Department to dismiss those charges for the sake of 
uh, diplomatic relations, something within the sort of reach of his Article yeah. Two authority. Um, and there's a belief, at least initially, that he probably can. I look um, that, that I tend to, I tend to agree with that point of view, which is that the president has the authority to direct the dismissal of an of an action uh, brought by the United States. Um, obviously, but what's so bizarre about this case is that. The United States has been seeking to enforce its laws against Huawei. The Canadians picked this woman up, the CFO of Huawei, you know, at sort of our request, our Justice Department's request. And then minutes later or hours later, the president tweets, well, you know, I could make a deal with China and then, you know, we could, you know, she could go free. And now there's this debate. And I do think the president probably has that authority. The president ultimately is the, is, can direct the, the attorney general. Um, the attorney general is not a sort of a separate part of, you know, an independent agency or anything. And if there is such a thing, um, that being said, there is a question whether the president should do that. Right. The uh, should whether, question, always whether, different from the candidate. Well, and in, and, in, and in the current era, those should versus, you know, can are, are, are big issues because, you know, the, 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 this president has, um, you know, a, a broad view of his authority, um, and, and a willingness to, uh, Execute on that broad view. It's a willingness to tweet. Well, there's a willingness to tweet. I mean, there's a lot of policy being made, you know, on the fly without a lot of staffing. Um, and uh, so, you know, I mean, these are very in in, a, in any other administration, you might hear. Oh, these are interesting legal questions. Could the president do this? Might he do this? Right? But you'd know that there would be a long process by which the president would decide and would consider whether it makes sense. It feels like in this administration, you know, it might just happen by tweet. And then everyone would just have to deal with the fallout. And instead of one of those long sort of memos to the Office of Legal Counsel requesting guidance, that kind of thing, yeah. not so much. Okay. So um, in addition to the Supreme Court cases that we've talked about this year, we really can't close out 2018 without talking about foreign influence campaigns. Um, we just finished a podcast with Bradley Hart, who has written yeah. a book on the Nazi influence campaign in the run-up to World War II. But the bottom line is, I think we've decided to have a conversation at this point about what is the best tool that we can have to prevent Americans from falling prey to foreign influence campaigns. Um, what is the answer here? And I think there is a, a a pretty good body of data out there that show um, that if you understand your government, if you are very well informed on the law and uh, the Constitution, you're less susceptible to these messages. And so, um, what do you think would be a good solution? I know Elizabeth Rinskoff Parker is of a view that civics, you know, we just don't teach it in schools anymore, that this would be a good thing. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I, you know, I've heard, I've heard that argument. I've heard the argument from Farah Pandith, who served in both the Bush and Obama administrations um, as a special representative to, to Muslim communities. She's argued for a Marshall Plan for civics, mm -hmm. this idea that, um, it, it, just like you say, if if you educate students in the American public about the, about our values and about our laws and about what what America really means, that you can sort of get better outcomes, um, and that we will be better in the way we talk to one another, and the better in the way that we handle these issues, um, and we'll be more less likely to fall prey to foreign influence. But you know, and, and I certainly think that's a really important thing. I think we've got to do that. I think that is a national imperative. The National Constitution Center, uh, run by Jeffrey Rosen has this amazing set of resources on their website. They've got this great, uh, this great uh, series of conversations between Justice Gorsuch and Sotomayor about the Constitution, debates between the Federal Society, the American Constitution Society. I mean, it is an amazing resource. So there are real good thinkers out there, uh, people talking about these issues, trying to get the word out. 
I think these are critically important uh, efforts. At the same time, I, I got to say that part of the blame for the situation we find ourselves in and, and, the, and the actual the success that in particular the Russian foreign influence campaign that began in 2015, 2016 has had on the American public, we have none but our elected officials to blame for it. Right? You have people on Capitol Hill who are at each other's throats, right, uh, fighting in a partisan manner. Democrats and Republicans at each other's throats. Particularly, you look at the House Intelligence Committee with Devin Nunes and Adam Schiff at each other's throats constantly, and I blame both of them for this, right? Whether you argue one or they might have more responsibility, at each other's throats. There's no question Russia made an effort to undermine confidence in the American public and in, in the American public in our electoral system and in our rule of institutions. And yet you have these, these people on Capitol Hill, ostensibly elected representatives, who can't figure out a way to work together and address the real threat to American democracy, which is Russia's efforts. Not one another, not politics, not whether Donald Trump should or should be elected or not whether, you know, we should investigate Hillary Clinton's Uranium One, you know, deals where she have another special prosecutor, right? And in the Senate, thankfully, you've seen more bipartisanship. You've seen that, you know, Mark Warner and, um, and, um, um, uh, Burr. Burr, thank you. So, you know, the Chairman Burr and, and, and Vice Chairman Warner, you've seen the Senate can get together and mm-hmm. figure this out and work together and really address the real issues at play. But for some reason, the House, and, you know, the House is more rabble-rousing as the framers wanted it to be. Um, but it's become more rabble-rousing in a way that has, that has empowered empowered a foreign nation state. And I blame, in part, the president for this, too. The president's constant attack on the free media, the president's constant attack on the Justice Department and the FBI to be sure there were problems there, to be sure there were people, people were not, there were people that, individuals were not doing the right thing, but that does not indict the institution. And until we realize that we're in the throes of a full-on attack against our democratic institutions brought by a foreign nation state, frankly, a, a two-bit nation state, doesn't have real economic power, doesn't have real political influence, who we are empowering Russia by our own behavior until we realize that, right? We're not going to get out of this, this spiral. And I, and I really worry about where we are as a country, uh, because we're at each other's throats in a partisan way rather than identifying the real threat to our democracy, which is Russia. Well, I, I, I do, I hear what you're saying and I agree with you. I, ha- I have a question though for you, which is, is there something about the two year election cycle and the amount of money that it takes to run for office that is fueling this, throwing some sort of accelerant on this, let's just say, bad behavior in this discord? Well, I mean, look, I mean, campaigns have always gotten more expensive and they're all, it's all relative to, you know, what, what the cost of living is on any given day. And campaigns have certainly gotten more expensive as, as a share of that. That being said, you know, we've had a two-year election cycle for 200-some years. We have not acted in this manner to one another and this level of incivility, this, uh, this, this uh, inability to control ourselves and be sensible when it's a foreign nation state attacking us. Um, we haven't seen that in 200 years. And so um, I'm not sure it's about money in politics. I do think it's a little bit about people being in too safe of seats. I do think gerrymandering has played part of the problem here, which is that when you have too safe a seat, right, people run to the edges. I do think, frankly, our, our the rapidity with which we get the, me- the media, sort of the cycle, the news cycle runs, and the fact that we now have the ability to sort of ghettoize ourselves into into um, areas of, of information, whether it's on social media or on Facebook or the like, where it's just us and our friends, and we all think the same thing, and so we all sort of sort of radicalize ourselves, right? So self, it's almost like self-radicalization when it comes to political thought, right? Um, and, you know, 
And by that, you're also, obliquely, you're referring back to social media and our tendency to follow and pay attention to things that reinforce our existing beliefs. Yeah. Even the, and the worst of our existing beliefs, right? Um, you know, there's been a lot of, a lot of literature about uh, the impact of the internet on child predators and, and child sex exploitation. But if you think about it, the same reasons those people were able to find homes on the internet and radicalize themselves and, and become more atrocious and, and, and horrible, right? It's the same reason that we in our own politics sort of make ourselves run to the extremes, right? Michael Hayden, who, you know, is hopefully recovering from the, his recent stroke uh, and recovering well, um, has written about this in his book, The Assault on Intelligence. Um, and he said it's really interesting because, you know, he, coming out of the intelligence community, the former CIA director, you know, has long had a, you know, tough relationship with the media, right? Uh, you know, he protects secrets, right. they reveal them, they've always found themselves in tension. But in this era where the debate is not about, it's about whether, whether something is true, factually true, or, or simply just whatever I think, right? Now all of a sudden, truth tellers, right? The media, the intelligence community, they find themselves on the same side of these debates. It's a really interesting turn of events. You know, we live in an era where it feels like people's opinions matter more than the objective truth. And it's almost like we don't even know that there's objective truth out there anymore. Well, it, would, you also, would you also agree, though, that there's been sort of an abandonment of serious news available to people who don't use social media and maybe are less sophisticated? And I say that because a number of the major networks have moved their news function under the entertainment umbrella. Yeah, I, I do worry about that. You know, I mean, some there are some news channels say that are unwatchable on both sides of the aisle, right? But even the centrist, sort of the quote-unquote centrist news stations, CNNs of the world, right? Increasingly, you watch CNN, and, and I hate to say this, but I love CNN, right? Um, increasingly, it feels like it's a talk show. Each of the, each, the each panels, anchor. The panels, the loathsome yeah, panels. Yeah. Stop the panels. Yeah, yeah, look, I'm, I'm on a lot of those panels, but I, but you know, the, the and I'm sure you're wonderful. But, but, they, but, no, but, the, but the anchors, the anchors themselves, you know, they have a point of view, right? Oh, and, yeah, it's too and, much. And it's, it's too much. And, you know, I, look, people have always criticized NPR for being liberal. I actually think NPR does a great job reporting the news and, you know, in a fairly even handed way. Um, and has for a long time. And I know there are individual reporters who have a, a axe to grind, fine, whatever. Um, but I do worry that when CNN, you know, put aside the Fox, the CNN, MSNBC, Fox whatever, News, fine, right. put that aside, right? But it worries when CNN is, is increasingly sort of taking one point of view. And, you know, what even worries me even more is, okay, so forget the politics of it, right? But we're putting on our national television, I get you got to report the news, but we're putting Russian intelligence operatives, right, Natalia Velskanaya. We're putting her on the news to talk about what she's doing, right? I mean, it is crazy. And then you have conservatives, right? Conservatives who, you know, in theory are anti-communist and whatever, and they're, you know, fetting George Papadopoulos and, you know, his efforts and his, you know, his new wife. And it's, 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 it's loathsome. It is loathsome. Yes, I would agree. These are my that. people. They're your peeps. My so, um, and I would also point out that the network news is now accompanied by an unending stream of medication ads, which suggests to me that the people watching that tend to be older yeah. um, and kind of less networked. So, um, uh, and they feature a lot of puppy stories, traffic things, and, and, you know, sort of other coverage that really is local news. Yeah. It's not anything intended to educate. So, uh, I well, I hope we see a sea change. I hope the people... The next generation becomes frightened enough by what has occurred here that they begin to think differently. Um, so I want to thank you. Jamil is also a contributor um, to Lawfare. He is a regular on the Cyber Law Podcast, which is available on Steptoe and Johnson's website. Um, and uh, we're a friend of the cast. We, we love the Cyber Law Podcast. We're going to hyperlink some of his writings and notes, as well as 
the oral argument in the cases that we've referenced here to the extent, I believe both of them are available in audio. I know Carpenter is. Um, and we'll also have Jamil's bio up on the site as well. Jamil, thanks so much for sitting down with us. This has been fun. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. National Security Law Today will be taking a break over the holidays, and we'll see you again in the new year. Join us again on January 10th for our first episode of 2019. In the meantime, you can find links to the Black Letter Laws and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. You can find more links to articles on today's topics on our website, as well as books that can help you grow your understanding of this important and fast-moving area of the law. You can also drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org, follow us on Twitter at ABANATSEC, or find us on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.